Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I'm Elisa Childers. With all the information our kids have access to these days, Christian parents are having to navigate some unprecedented conversations with our kids. From politics to morality to the intellectual claims of atheism and scientism, it can be overwhelming. Today, we're going to focus in on having theological conversations with our kids, specifically about progressive Christianity and how to prepare them for the challenges they will surely encounter in this post-truth world. Stay tuned. My guest today is Natasha Crane. Natasha is a public speaker, an author, and a blogger who's just really passionate about equipping Christian parents to raise their kids with an understanding of how to make a case and and for and defend their faith in an increasingly more secular world. She's written two apologetics books for parents called Talking With Your Kids About God and Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. Her newest book is called Talking With Your Kids About Jesus, and that is out today. You can order it on Amazon right now. And her website is christianmomthoughts.com. You can also just type in natashacrane.com to get there. So Natasha, thanks so much for being on the podcast again. This is your second time. Yeah. Thanks, Elisa. I'm excited to have a conversation with you again. Well, I'm really excited about your new book, not only because I'm a mom with young kids who needs the advice, but also because of the specific subject you've chosen to tackle is so incredibly important for parents to have clarity on. And and that subject is Jesus. This might seem like such a basic thing, but it's really not anymore because we're living in a culture that's trying to redefine who Jesus is. Uh, Specifically in progressive Christianity, I often hear things like, my Jesus wouldn't do that, or my Jesus never judged anyone. And so we basically have this whole belief system built around a false Jesus. And then of course, with the internet and social media platforms, so many of our kids are being taught things about Jesus that don't fully represent the truth about him. And then if you combine that with the fact that a lot of Christian kids sadly don't even really read their Bibles in the first place, they can end up inadvertently making a Jesus in their own image. And so Anything they like or prefer becomes what Jesus likes and prefers. And so your book is bringing so much needed clarity on the topic of Jesus. But not only that, I love that it's so specific to help Christian parents to have these conversations with their kids. And so in your book, you give an analogy of how to have those conversations with your kids and you you call it low-grade tidying. And that just really caught my attention. So tell us what that means and how can we use that as a method for discipling our kids? 
Yeah. Well, I have to admit, I'm really horrible at keeping my house picked up. So we have stuff everywhere all the time. I don't know if you suffer from this, Elisa, but yeah, I do. And got- that's actually why I loved that story because when you, you, you specifically mentioned, was it pencils? On yes. The, pencils yeah. on seat cushions. How Constantly. many pencils can I possibly pick up in a given day? Right. All, yeah. All <laughs> over the place and usually stuck to the cushion somehow. Yes. With some yes, sort of exactly. adhesive. <laughs> okay, thank you. I feel much better already. <laughs> no, it's true. It's just so hard to keep the house picked up. And we have, you know, homework papers all over and books. And and then I go to other people's houses and they're so clean. And I just wonder how on earth do they do this? What do they know that I don't know? So this is sort of an ongoing battle for me. And one day I was scrolling through Facebook and I came across this article and it was called Five Things That Tidy People Don't Do. And so that piqued my interest immediately. And I was like, I've got to find this out. So what it basically said was tidy people don't act like a slob all day and then get their house tidy in just one big fell swoop. Instead, mm. they develop some simple, non-drastic, tiny habits that change the tidiness of their home. And the article calls this a state of low-grade tidying. And this was a light bulb moment for me, which is kind of embarrassing because it was just a random article on Facebook, but it seriously changed how I thought about things because it just, it showed me that, okay, if I just start picking up in little ways around the house all the time, I don't have to be so overwhelmed. And so I've started to do that and that has helped. We still have the pencils everywhere, but I also thought, you know, this is a brilliant analogy for how to have faith conversations in our homes, because I think a lot of us feel like our spiritual houses aren't very orderly. So we don't have as many faith conversations as we should with our kids or maybe we have some, but they don't go the way that we like and discouragement starts setting in. And so I feel like a lot of parents might pick up my book and say, oh, there are 30 conversations I'm supposed to have with my kids about Jesus and feel really overwhelmed like the way that I do if I walk into a clean house. But Mm. what I want parents to understand is that this isn't about one giant faith clean out. That's really overwhelming, right? That's like setting aside hours upon hours to clean out your house. We never get around to it. But instead, we should be in this constant state of low-grade tidying when it comes to our faith conversations, just as with cleaning. So we can see these conversations as things that we just do a little bit at a time consistently over time and finding those opportunities in day-to-day life to just talk to our kids about these matters. And so that's how I hope parents will see my books really is just that these are a valuable guide to help you along the way. So you know what to tidy in your kid's understanding of Jesus. I love that. And it reminds me of something I've been really trying to be intentional about with particularly my daughter, who's asking a lot of faith questions, a lot of questions about the Bible and prayer and all kinds of things regarding her Christianity. But anytime I try to make a Bible study happen or us getting together as a family to read the Bible and to pray, it can just be so difficult because sometimes there's attitudes about it. Sometimes it's just hard to get everybody together at the same time. And I do try to make that happen. But what I've tried to be more aware of is that kids are thinking about things at different times. And it might be four o'clock in the afternoon when I'm thinking about what to make for dinner and I'm trying to tidy my house and get the pencils unstuck from the cushions. And (laughs) And that might be the moment they ask a question because that's when they're thinking about it. And so one thing I've tried to be intentional about is to just stop what I'm doing in that moment and say, look, this is what you were trying to accomplish earlier when you were trying to get everybody together to read the Bible. Now she's really wanting right. to know. And so to, to actually to, to turn our minds into that idea of low-grade tidying, because if you're tidying your house, there's inevitably going to be like a pile of socks or something that you have to stop for a second and just handle that one thing and yes. you're still tidying. And so just to take advantage of those moments when they actually are asking questions, because honestly, sometimes my my 
instinct or my knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, just give a quick answer or say, you know what, well, I'm, I'm busy right now, but actually stop what I'm doing and let her lead and, and talk with her about what she's thinking about because that's the prime moment she wants to know the answer. And it's just a great opportunity. So I love that. Low-grade tidying, be thinking, being thinking about it all the time rather than just one big overhaul. Uh, I also love that your book and your other books have had sections like this where it has a section at the end of each chapter with key points and a conversation guide. And this is so helpful. Talk a bit about why you've organized your book that way and how you're hoping that those little sections can give parents good takeaways to to actually begin to have these conversations. Yeah, well, I intentionally write the chapters in my books to be very short because they're intended for parents and parents are very busy and, you know, we don't have the time to sit down and read giant textbooks worth of information a lot of times. So my chapters are only about five pages in length, but they have a lot of meat in them. And because the topics are new for a lot of people, I found that it's really helpful to just have these quick summary points at the end. So even though you get to the end of your five pages and you say, wow, okay, I just learned a lot. I have this in my head. By the time you get through three more chapters, you might think, wait, what was the answer to that question? Mm, And so this just gives parents an easy way to quickly flip back and get a quick reminder. Okay. This, this was a key stuff that I needed to know to talk about with my kids. And so I've heard from a lot of people that's been really helpful. I kind of remember back with my last book when I had a new editor and she read through the chapters and she said, well, do we still need key points? The chapters are so short, you know, usually books Mm. have longer chapters before summaries. And I said, no, no, no. Parents love this because that there, there is so much new stuff in them. So yes, we have key points at the end of all of them. And also there's a conversation guide. So even if you have the information in your head, a lot of times parents say, but how do I get it out of my head and kind of start dialoguing with my kids about this? And so the conversation guides for every single chapter just provide step-by-step points of questions that you can introduce your kids to. And it starts with a really easy one, open the conversation This can be used with just a really young kid, or it can be used as a starting point with older kids. And I hope that parents will see this as an opportunity to use the book with their kids over time as they get older so that it's not just a one-time sit down, a one-time clean out, that Mm. they can tidy over time by tackling maybe the easiest question first at some point with their kids. And then when they get a little bit older, come back to it and maybe go another question or two in. And when you have the understanding from the chapter yourself, then you'll see those opportunities as they come up, those little tidying moments where you can go back and say, Hey, you know, there's something that I wanted to share with you about this. Mm. And so really that's the the value I think of the conversation guys is that'll help you over time as your kids grow. And also if you have kids of multiple ages, it shows you how to go into varying levels of depth with those kids. And the hardest question there is the final one, which is actually every chapter has a quote from a skeptic, someone who's challenging Mm the content that they just learned about in the chapter. So if you have older kids, you know, tweens or teenagers, this is a great opportunity to throw them up with one of these questions after you have the conversation and say, okay, now how would you respond to this? This is a real world quote and they all have a footnote to where you can find them online. And this is what somebody says. How would you respond now, given what you know? I love that you do that. And just as, as someone who's been sort of studying some of these deconstruction stories and these deconversion stories, even among the most intelligent and smart people who have deconstructed their faith, there's always a common theme of they, they just weren't exposed to certain ideas. And this was all new for them. That, that happened to me in my story. I'd, I was asked skeptical questions I'd never heard of, and I was over 30 years old. And so I just love that we're giving our kids just a little dose of what they're going to get in the real world, but they're yeah. getting it 
under the protection and care of, uh, you know, us who love Jesus, who, who want to promote faith. And it can be a scary thing for parents to read a quote from a skeptic, but man, I, I just, I don't think there's a better way to prepare kids. It's kind of like an inoculation, like a vaccine. You just get a little bit of that skeptical pushback so that they can begin yeah. to think those things through in the safety of a Christian home. I, I'm so, I just, I really admire that you've done that. And, and it's, it's scary to a lot of parents, but it's so important. Um, well, and, and, you know, you tell a story of, in your book of, going to a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, because you wanted to grow in your faith. You realized like, I need to go a little deeper. And so you just grabbed a book and, and discovered it was by a scholar named John Dominic Crossan. And this was sort of a pivotal moment for you. And so tell us that story and how that book impacted your faith and how it affected how you even began to think about Christianity. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, so I had always considered myself a Christian. I hadn't walked away from my faith or anything like that, but I had a very sort of surface level understanding of Christianity. You know, I knew Jesus died for my sins and I accepted him as my savior and I was going to heaven someday. That was, that was kind of the core of what I knew, which all very important things, right. But not a lot of depth. And so by the time that I left for college, I was kind of a nominal Christian. And during college, I honestly didn't think very much about my faith, but by the time I left college, I started to realize, you know, I need to, I need to get a little deeper here. I need to understand some more stuff. So I went off to the bookstore one day and looked for the Christian section. Makes total sense, right? Right. Because what could possibly go wrong in the what Christian section? What could go section? wrong with what that? Could wrong? <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong? Yes. So I was thumbing through some books and I love history. And so one of the books caught my eye. It was called Jesus, A Revolutionary Biography. And that really just caught my attention. I thought, oh, oh wow, this is going to be interesting. And it was all about Jesus in his historical context. So I thought, well, this is a great place to start. And on the cover, it actually says a startling account of what we can know about the life of Jesus. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. I yeah. grab the book and I take it home and I start reading it. And that line was totally true. It completely startled me because the Jesus that I read about was nothing like the Jesus that I grew up knowing. So this Jesus that was portrayed by, by this author, this scholar, he was a Jesus who didn't perform miracles. He didn't die for the sins of mankind. He didn't physically rise from the dead. And yet he was a Christian scholar. He was writing about Mm. Christianity from my perspective. And I honestly didn't know what to make of it. I hadn't been exposed to any of these kinds of ideas. And so in my naivety, I just assumed that this really well-credentialed scholar must know what he's talking about. So is the problem that my church had been wrong all this time? Or did I just totally misunderstand all the stuff that my church had taught? And maybe they were teaching what this guy was saying. It didn't even really honestly occur to me, which is embarrassing in retrospect, but it didn't occur to me that maybe he's the one who's wrong. Mm. And the thing is, because I'd never engaged with these questions and never encountered them, didn't know anything about, you know, these varied views. I didn't know what to do with what I read. I didn't even know where to start from there. I didn't know what questions to ask. I didn't know what resources to look for. I I just didn't know. All I knew was, well, there's a bookstore with a Christian section. And honestly, I was kind of just paralyzed and I didn't do much for a long time because I just kind of chalked it up to some confusion and I went on with my life without thinking much about it. But it was the first time that I realized there are a lot more ideas about Jesus out there than I had encountered. I just had no idea which ones to believe and where I had gone wrong or where maybe my church had gone wrong. So it made Mm. me wonder what I didn't know. 
yeah. for a long time. And Crossan is a member of the Jesus Seminar, which a, a lot of Christian parents may not be aware of what that is, but they actually need to know what that is. So tell us about the Jesus Seminar that Crossan is involved in, and, and why do Christian parents need to know about it? Yeah, so the Jesus Seminar was this group of scholars that was organized back in 1985, and they basically were getting together to determine who the historical Jesus, quote-unquote, really was. And of course, that assumes we don't actually know the answer based on the Gospels. So that gives you a little clue into some of the framework that they're Mm -hmm. using and the assumptions going into it. But basically, this group met regularly to debate the authenticity of the various words and deeds of Jesus, and then they would cast votes to gain consensus. And the outcome of this process was that they eventually concluded that about 18% of Jesus' sayings and 16% of his recorded deeds were authentic. Mm. So everything else inauthentic. And so what you have left after removing all of this other stuff that they say is not historical, it's inauthentic, is a Jesus that just hardly resembles the Jesus of the Gospels as we read them. And that Jesus who is left over, that's the Jesus who was reflected in this book that I picked up. And that's why he looked so different, because they're throwing out the vast majority of what the Gospels say about them based on various criteria that they use to determine historical authenticity. So the reason that parents need to care about this, it might seem far removed because we're talking about a group that organized in 1985, but their work has really rippled throughout churches and books, as you know, Elisa, from that time on. And it's had a huge influence on what many people think is reasonable to believe about Jesus today. And they really popularized this idea that there's a huge wedge between the so-called real Jesus of history and the Jesus of Christian faith. And scholars have debated this wedge for hundreds of years, but it was really with the Jesus Seminar that a lot more people at a popular level started to take on these ideas and and see that there and believe that there's this big difference between the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith. And a lot of progressive Christians follow the scholars from the Jesus Seminar, like Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, who we just talked about, Robert Funk. These are scholars who are informing a lot of the work of some of the progressive Christian thought leaders, uh, separating that historical Jesus from the biblical Jesus. And much like in secular scholarship, our kids are going to encounter all kinds of false Jesuses in progressive Christianity as they gain momentum on social media platforms, as they gain influence even in the church. So I love how your book is organized to sort of tackle each one of those false Jesuses in turn. So take, for example, the claim that Jesus didn't really perform miracles. Progressive Christians tend to underplay the miraculous claims of of the Bible. They might not outright say the, re- the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, but they'll, you'll often hear words like, well, it doesn't matter if it really happened because we want to focus on the moral point or the, the teaching, the, the grain of truth we can learn from that story. So, uh, Natasha, in your book, you, you deal with that topic. So why does it matter that Jesus really did perform miracles? H- how can we know that those miracles actually happened? And there's sort of a three-part question how can Christian parents start introducing these, that idea to their kids and, and start a conversation about the miraculous nature of what Jesus did and why that matters? 
Yeah. I, and I think that it's important that we start with just explaining to them that yes, miracles matter in a huge way. This isn't just a, you know, pick and choose your own adventure with the Bible, take a miracle here, throw out a miracle there. This is the core of Christianity. Miracles matter because if they happened, they would have validated Jesus's claims to deity. So it has everything to do with his identity and, and who he was. The ultimate miracle, of course, is the resurrection. And as Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. Yeah. So all of Christianity hinges on a miracle. And this is so important for our kids to understand that this is the historical event. This is the truth test for Christianity. If Jesus was raised from the dead, he was who he said he was, and he is the Lord of our lives. He has full authority over us. He's our creator and our sustainer. All of these things become true. And if he wasn't, we don't need to care what he said. We don't right. need to see him as a good moral teacher because his word is as good as anyone else's. So it's, it's so important for kids to understand that this is the starting point for our faith. And it's not just the resurrection, of course. Jesus performed miracles, according to the Gospels, all throughout his ministry, which were signs to people of who he was. And so in, in my book, I have a chapter where I work through seven pieces of evidence that point to the historicity of Jesus's miracles. And I know that we don't want to take the time to go through all of those, but just to highlight a couple for yeah. those who are listening. Uh, first of all, Jesus' miracles appear in our earliest sources about him. So scholars are always interested in the earliest sources that we can find for anything, the ones that were written the closest in time to the reported event, because they assume that there's less time for legend to develop after that. So when it comes to the Gospels, our earliest written Gospel, as most scholars believe at least, is Mark. And there's no doubt that Mark, as the earliest source here within the Gospels, presents a miracle performing Jesus. Mm -hmm. And in fact, scholars have estimated that about 40 percent of the narrative in Mark involves miracles in some way. So you can't just pick and choose from the narrative what, you know, this is a miracle and this is a good teaching. They're very much intertwined and they're the focus of the whole gospel. And it's not just Mark, of course, who presents Jesus as a miracle worker. We see him referenced throughout the gospels as a miracle worker and about the miracle of the resurrection, of course. We see throughout the rest of the New Testament, the references to the miracles and the resurrection. And so we have multiple independent sources that make these claims. And in fact, there is no trace of a Jesus in our existing sources who didn't perform miracles. So we don't have sort of any competing narratives out there where we could go back and say, well, look, in this book over here that we have from the same time period, Jesus didn't perform miracles at all. What we see is that everyone acknowledges he's doing something spectacular that drew crowds. All scholars agree, or the vast, vast majority of scholars agree that he drew crowds. And of course, they're going to debate why he was drawing crowds. But when we look at that and we see that this was the claim and that people weren't denying that he was doing spectacular things and said they were questioning the source of this power, mm -hmm. then we start to ask, well, what's, what's the best explanation for this? And so there's no doubt that the earliest sources consistently and independently claim Jesus was performing miracles. When we talk to our kids and we get to that next question of, well, how do we know these actually happened? You know, it's one thing to claim they happened, another thing to show that they happened. Then I think the best place is to help them learn the evidence for the resurrection itself, because we have really good historical evidence for the resurrection. And later in the book, I spend six chapters talking about that evidence. Mm. And I know we're going to come back to that later, so I'll leave it yeah. there. But I think that's that's the place to start with our kids, explaining that Christianity's truth test is the resurrection. 
there are a lot of historical reasons when we look at the sources to know that everyone claimed Jesus was performing some kind of miracle or spectacular work. And when we look at the evidence for the resurrection, we have really good reason to believe he was raised from the dead, which then would validate these other claims of miracles that we see. We're talking with Natasha Crane about her new book, Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. And today we're specifically talking about having conversations with our kids about progressive Christianity, which Natasha addresses in her book as well. These are ideas that our kids are becoming more exposed to, not just online, not just through TV and movies, but also in their circle of friends and even gaining a growing influence in our churches. They're going to be encountering it there. So there's never been a time when we've needed more resources to help equip our kids with the real thing, the real gospel, a thorough understanding of the Bible, how we got the Bible, what the Bible is. And so I want to tell you about Impact 360 Institute. They've created life-changing experiences to help the next generation own their faith. They have a nine-month gap year program, which I just got to go visit and walk the students through two days worth of information about progressive Christianity. They will be mentored by trusted advisors like J.P. Moreland, Frank Turner, John Stone Street, and more. If you think your student might be a good fit, there are extremely limited spots left for the 2020-2021 class. So we encourage you to start the application process right away. The application for 2021-2022 will be opening this summer. Go to impact360.org to apply and use the promo code ALISA, that's my name, A-L-I-S-A, to waive the application fee. One of the most compelling sources for me when I was first looking through all of this and the the miraculous nature of Jesus' ministry actually comes from not just a non-Christian source, but actually a very smart second century Greek philosopher who was writing extensively trying to actually disprove Christianity. He was sort of an apologist uh, for anti-Christianity, and his name was Celsus. And so uh, this was second century. We would expect somebody who's trying to disprove Christianity, especially in the second century, to be like, this guy didn't perform miracles. There's no way. That's, that's That's just stupid. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he acknowledges that Jesus was able to perform miracles, but he was just trying to figure out why. And so he tells this story of Jesus being hired to go to Egypt and because he was in Egypt, he acquired certain powers, uh, like magical powers from the e- Egyptians. And he said he returned home uh, so excited at possessing these powers and they, they, the strength they gave him that he made himself out to be a god. So this second century Greek philosopher is actually saying, yeah, here's why he was able to f- perform those miracles right. in this extensive uh, intellectual attack on Christianity. And I, I think that's so persuasive because... It's not like he's saying it didn't happen. He's trying to figure out how those miracles happened. Obviously, everybody knew that Jesus had done miracles. And so that was just just a powerful piece of evidence for me as I was looking through this stuff. And in progressive Christianity, of course, the teachings of Jesus, more than anything else, become distorted. Many progressives claim that Jesus isn't the only way to God. And I think that kids can often find that idea appealing because it seems like the nice thing to do. Then they don't have to tell their friends that 
they have to believe in Jesus to be saved. And I think we can all understand why that would be appealing to, to young people. But why do you think kids and adults, frankly, are so ready to accept that kind of claim? And, and what did Jesus actually teach about it? Well, like you're saying, I think no one today wants to suggest that someone else is wrong. It's the cardinal sin in our culture to claim that there's only one right belief because we all want to be so super tolerant, right? Mm -hmm. So for a Christian to come along and say, hey, there's actually objective truth and it applies to all people, whether you believe it or not. Jesus is the only way to God. If we do that, people literally want to pick up rocks and throw them at us, right? And interestingly today, it's not just non-believers who are saying, hey, that's really arrogant and that's really narrow-minded. We hear it increasingly within the church from other people who claim to be Christians, especially in this progressive world. So it's really it's really uh, tempting, I think, for kids to go along with the cultural drift toward wanting to believe that, you know, everything is right. And then they don't have to feel like they're in this uncomfortable position, but we have to help our kids understand more deeply. Okay. Why do Christians who hold the historic Christian faith, why do we say there is only one way to God? And so for a lot of Christians to answer this question, I bet a lot of people right now are thinking this verse in their heads, uh, you know, John 14, five through six, Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is obviously a really important verse, and it seems to point us straight to Jesus saying, yes, there is just one way to the Father. No one else comes to Him except through me. And so this verse is important, but I do want to say, I think that it's not the best way to approach this with our kids to just pull out one verse and say, hey, look what Jesus said here. Mm -hmm. They need to have more theological background in terms of kind of the underpinnings of that. And I, I realized this a few years years ago because I had this conversation with a friend and he was a Christian and he believed in, in, in that Jesus died for his sins and he he believed the Bible. But when I told him about this verse and he said, well, yeah, but that could have meant a lot of different things. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, what if he's walking in people from other religions? He's just saying he's the one that chooses that. And mm-hmm. it kind of made me scratch my head at the time because I thought, I don't know how to, to respond. But I think this is true with so many things in the Bible. We can pull out a verse and sometimes without more context, especially theologically, we don't necessarily know for sure what that refers to. And so people can distort it in a lot of ways. So in the chapter where I talk about this and helping our kids really break down those theological underpinnings, I talk about two key aspects to it. The, the first one is a question of whether Jesus is atonement was even necessary for people mm-hmm. to have eternal life. Because for a lot of people, they just, you know, a universalist would just say, well, the atonement wasn't necessary. It was just something that, you know, Jesus just died on the cross and that's just a historical event and didn't happen. Yeah. So for that, our kids need to have a good understanding of what the Bible says about the nature of sin and the nature of God. If God is this loving and just God, he can't just overlook sin because that would make him unjust. But he has lovingly chosen to make provision for our forgiveness through Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. And this is what the Bible tells us, that this, in fact, is the way that God offered reconciliation to mankind. So theologians debate whether or not Jesus could have come up with, a. I mean, whether or not God could have come up with some other kind of atonement. But the fact is, this is the one kind of way that God has offered it to us. And Mm. so that's the first kind of layer of understanding that the Bible says that Jesus's atonement uniquely reconciled us to God. And then the second part of that, the second question that we have to get to is, okay, once we've established that God chose Jesus's sacrifice on the cross as the way of our atonement, does that mean everyone will have eternal life through that? Mm. And some Christians who would be called Christian universalists believe that's the case. 
that yes, his atonement was necessary. It paved the path, but it also paved the path for all people. And to this, we can point to all kinds of verses that I highlight in the chapter that show that, no, there is an alternative. Not everyone has eternal life. And even the most famous verse in the Bible can show us that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So there's a condition there, whoever believes in him, and then there's an alternative to eternal life, shall not perish. And we can see multiple verses that point to the same thing. So these are just a couple of admittedly deep questions that really underlie what Jesus meant when he summarizes it all, saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And when we get deeper like this with our kids, then they can have a better appreciation for what's going on here when he's saying that and why it's so important. And that's such a great point about not just picking one verse out, because you're right, especially in the progressive movement, uh, a lot of progressive Christians will say, oh, no, I'm not a universalist. And so that lets your guard down and you're thinking, oh, okay, they're not, they're not a universalist, but they are, uh, as you called it, Christian universalism, or I've heard it called universal reconciliation. Uh, different yeah. progressives have different terms. Uh, I think Nadia Boltz-Weber calls it Christocentric universalism, something along those lines. But the idea is that, yeah, that verse is absolutely true. No one comes to the Father but through me, but everyone is going to come to the Father through me. I'm going to save everyone. And so that becomes a sort of a tweak on universalism that is a, is a bit tricky. But you're right. And, and even bringing up John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There is that condition there. But even just going down a couple of verses later, where it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And so to, to make a case that just it, there's, there's no such thing as hell, there's no such thing as punishment is just not tenable when you really read the Bible from cover to cover and take what it's saying uh, as, as a whole. And, and so this brings us to the difficult subject of hell. This is actually something I've written an entire chapter on in my book. And in a recent podcast, I told the story of my second grade teacher who was just apparently obsessed with hell. And she would have us close our eyes and imagine fire and worms. And so I had this really scary idea of hell. And then you combine that with this traveling play. I think it was called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Do you remember that? Were you around when that was making the rounds? No, I don't remember that. Okay. Well, it was really, it was a really popular play that was making the rounds in, in the evangelical church in the late eighties, early nineties, somewhere around there, probably more like early nineties, which by the way, were a weird time of church history. <laughs> I mean, let's we, like we can just acknowledge that. But my whole conception of hell was based on this second grade teacher and then this church play that basically had this really kind of sexy, cool Satan emerge out of this fiery pit laughing, just utterly loving his time in hell and getting to drag all these poor people who were repentant and wished they would have been able to hear the gospel, you know, they're mine. And he drags them away. And there's so many misconceptions we have of hell because of course the devil isn't going to be having fun in hell. The hell was actually created for him, uh, to, to punish him. And so, the, you know, he's not like the mayor with a throne down in hell, like we often see depicted on TV, but this is a subject that is really tough for parents to approach with their kids. I even find myself being because of the sign of the more traumatic way I was introduced to it, I, I 
I tend to sort of pull the punch because I don't want to scare them. I don't want them to be traumatized. And so this can be a very difficult thing for parents to maneuver. Uh, And so in the progressive church, when hell is discussed, it's almost always rejected as a real place of punishment or separation from God's love. They, they, they would, you know, they're not sure about a hundred things, but the one thing they are sure on is that hell does not exist, at least in the way we've understood it. So, Parents really, we we all, and I this I'm asking too, we need to find a better way here, not avoiding it, but also being sure that we handle it biblically. And I think it's one of those topics that maybe we we do it in an age-appropriate way. So how do we do that? Help us, Natasha. Yeah, I, I think it's so true that how we handle this is important. And that perhaps never was as clear to me as it was in the last year or so when I had this blogger, and I know that you interacted with her a little bit too, Elisa, yeah. who was an ex-Christian homeschooling mom, and she deconverted and just had a real um, passion, I guess, for speaking out against Christianity, sort of anti-apologetics. Yeah. And so she started following some of us who were writing about apologetics, and she ended up taking my book, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, and blogging through it with um, pretty much a blog post on every chapter and just challenging what I would say in it. Did and you enjoy that? Was that fun for you? <laughs> oh, it's it's super fun when people do that. But you know, it, you're fair game when yeah. you write stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I, and so I'm, I'm always interested to hear what people say. But it's also interesting because a lot of times you can read between the lines that no matter what it is that you're talking about in your book that someone's responding to, sometimes you keep seeing the same objection come up throughout everything that doesn't even necessarily relate to whatever the individual topic is. And that was exactly what the case was with this blogger that, you know, nine times out of 10, there was something going on about hell in all these blog posts. And it just had me scratching my head after a while because she kept talking about how much fear there would be in, in my house and, you know, that my kids must be so fearful and, you know, how, how hell was just this thing and how she would go to sleep at night when she was a kid, just really terrified Mm. about this whole thing. And so it was, really, I didn't grow up in a home where hell was presented in this kind of way and and nor was my church like that. So this is not something that I experienced firsthand. And it was eye-opening to kind of see how that was the lens through which she seemed to view so many of the problems with Christianity. And so that kind of gave me a sensitivity to this topic that I hadn't had before because I realized that she really thinks that, you know, we are damaging our kids because we are teaching them this concept of hell. So it it is important that we do this right. And it's also important that we don't treat it like a PG-13 subject. And a lot of times parents kind of think, well, I'll teach my kids about this when they're older. Mm. But it's part of the truth that God has revealed about eternity. So when we put it in its appropriate theological context, here we come with context again, we see that there's nothing for us or our kids to fear. So we want to be really matter of fact about hell. And like you said, there are so many of these kind of cultural distortions around what hell is or who the devil is and what that looks like. We want to get away from those kinds of things. And if we're not talking about hell at all, then our kids are going to see those things and that's going to become their concept of hell. So just from a really practical perspective, first, hell is real. This is just, you know, important first concept to start with. And Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. So, you know, there are a lot of things that the Jewish people around the time of Jesus and before believed that weren't necessarily uh, consistent with what Jesus said later. And so he had no problem challenging the Jewish ideas of the day. But when Mm -hmm. it came to those Jewish, prevailing Jewish ideas of the time on hell, Jesus mirrored those ideas and Mm -hmm. he expanded on 
them in the words that we have. So there, there's no doubt that Jesus is presenting hell as a real place. And the other thing we can say is that he absolutely presents hell as punishment after a final judgment. A lot of times people to say today say, well, it's just kind of a time as of correction or, you know, yeah. it's, it's sort of a, a fluffy place that we go to and it sounds bad, but after all, it'll be okay. And, and, you know, we don't have to worry so much, but in Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a pretty detailed account of judgment day where he talks about separating the sheep from the goats. Mm-hmm. And he says that some will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. So it's very clear here that we're not talking about something corrective in nature, that we're talking about punishment. And this is not the only verse that speaks to this. We see this in other places as well. So hell is a real, hell is real, and it's also a place of punishment. And we don't want to water it down. I mean, Jesus yeah. gives some very serious images about darkness and, and how we should see this. So he does want us to know this is not a place that you want to be. And yeah. I think these are some basic concepts that our kids should know. But... And here's the big, but no one has to go there. Right. <laughs> and I, th- I think this is the part that so many people are, are, are missing that when we put our trust in Jesus, because God has lovingly made provision for our forgiveness, the payment has been made and we are forgiven. So we don't need to fear hell because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1, we don't have to fear that. And a lot of times skeptics say, oh, Christianity, it's this fear-based religion. Well, If you're not in right relationship with God, then yes, we should be fearful of what that means for us. But it doesn't mean that Christians love Jesus because we are fearful of him or we shouldn't. Maybe some people do, and maybe that's why she did. But at the end of the day, that's not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible calls us to love. And when we love Jesus and we recognize that our sin separates us from him and we're grateful for his loving sacrifice for our sins, then we come to him out of a love. And it's not that we're coming to him because we fear hell. Mm. And so at the end of the day, we want our kids to know, look, no one has to go there. There's nothing, absolutely nothing for you to fear as a Christian, because we will be with Jesus forever. Yeah. And I think that this can even be better understood by looking at the flip side. I think that some of these misconceptions of hell and and false ideas about hell can also come from not having a right view of heaven, right? In culture, the typical yeah. view of heaven is that it's, well, we, uh, we see this in that show that just kind of wrapped up called The Good Place, which I watched a bit and, you know, I thought it was a fun show, but the, I couldn't even watch the end of it because it was so depressing, you know, because heaven is sort of just this neat place where you get frozen yogurt and mm-hmm. everybody, but then, you know, you keep realizing as the show goes on that they're still fallen humans. And so they're driving each other crazy and it ends up, it's not really the good place. It's the bad place. And, but ultimately at the end, when they fix all the problems, all have all they're left with is just beautiful beaches and more froyo and nice feelings and parties and, yeah. and and that's not heaven and that would that would be miserable after a few million years and so essentially they walk through a door <laughs> basically ceasing to exist and they choose when they get to do that which to me is like the most depressing wrap up ever but it's so based on such wow. a false idea of heaven heaven isn't just this you know eternal disneyland we the reason that we want to go to heaven is because we are going to be in the presence of the god we love we're going to be under his rule we are we are going to be in a place where we are with him and we are made like him. And for people who really get the gospel, like this is an exciting thing to think about. But if you don't have that understanding of heaven, you, you can't fathom why 
somebody who doesn't love God, who doesn't know him would even want to go there because they're going to be with the God that they hate on this earth. Why are they going to all of a sudden want to be in his presence for eternity. And so I think some, even having a false idea of heaven, like when I was a kid, I had that based on that church play. I thought heaven was, you know, metallic curtains and people standing around in white robes and singing and being completely bored all day. And so I think that there's, there's this misconception. We have to understand both and we can't have that heaven. We can't have a God who's going to wipe away all of the tears from our eyes. If evil and suffering and sin is allowed in, And I don't know how people resolve that. I don't think I've read a meaningful resolution of that. But I think even focusing with our kids, too, on what heaven really is, is going to help with a proper understanding of hell. Sorry, I didn't didn't mean to step on a soapbox there for a second, but... Sometimes. <laughs> no, I think that is such a good point. And I have to say, it's kind of funny that you bring up that show because I had, I don't watch TV much at all. I really don't like TV. So my husband and I, are, we're always trying to find maybe mm-hmm. something that I'll actually enjoy. And so we tried to watch that show for a couple of episodes and I just, I found it just mm-hmm. unbearable <laughs> because of the kind of just cultural misconceptions about God and the afterlife yeah. and, you know, how you get to God. It just, it was, I, I found it just intolerable. <laughs> so it's interesting to hear how that show concluded. I'm glad that you suffered in my <laughs> behalf. Yeah. <laughs> and watching through that and letting me know how it ended. But what a fascinating way that they ended yeah. that show to just choose not and, to exist. And they portrayed it as, so as this great thing. Like, this is beautiful. And I was so depressed. And somebody, wow. I think from the Gospel yeah. Coalition, wrote an article uh, uh, reviewing that. And when I read it, I was like, oh, good. Now I don't have to write this because I was going to, I was going <laughs> to, I was thinking about even writing a piece about how depressing that was and why are people yeah. thinking this is a beautiful ending. But I'll, I'll find that article and put it in the podcast notes if anybody wants to to give it a, a listen. But, you know, a lot of this is coming from this sort of postmodern idea that, you know, you don't want to challenge anybody. You don't want to make any objective truth claims. And so their favorite Bible verse, like progressive Christians' favorite Bible verse, the atheist favorite Bible verse is you shouldn't, is Jesus saying, judge not lest you be judged. And so it's used to justify all kinds of things. And again, this is one of the things that often sounds good to kids. They they don't want to judge. They, they want to be kind. They want to be considered tolerant. But the idea that Jesus is just purely saying never judge anything for any reason. It's just not biblical. And so we need to make sure they understand what Jesus really taught. So what what did Jesus really teach about judgment? Are Christians never supposed to judge? This is one of my favorite chapters in the book because I I couldn't wait to write it. I, I just have encountered mm-hmm. this so much. And, and like you said, you know, anytime you turn around, if you say anything about something not being biblical or you say anything about sin online, immediately you're going to have a ton of people who surround yeah. you and say, you are judging. I'm leaving that to God. Don't judge. And it's interesting because you hear this both from uh, non-believers and believers. And non-believers come along and kind of try to throw your own holy book yeah. at you, right? And they say, hey, why don't you do what Jesus tells you to and not judge? And then other Christians sometimes just have have a misunderstanding. And they think that that's what, what Jesus said as well. And they come along and say, Hey, you shouldn't be judging, leave that to God. So it's interesting because you get it from all directions. I actually just saw this morning an article and it was in the Christian post that someone had shared. And it was about Ben Affleck actually, and how he has become Mm. a Christian. And so it's interesting because, uh, it says that he now belongs to the United Methodist church, I guess. And he talks about the beauty that he's found in Christianity. And this is his quote. 
one of the things that I found most beautiful about it, Christianity, and I struggle with my faith, I struggle with belief, but I do see there's something enormously beautiful and elegant about the notion that we're all sinners, that it's our job to find our redemption, Mm -hmm. to find God's love, to redeem ourselves, Mm -hmm. to live the best life that we can, to love one another, to not judge one another, and to forgive one another, Affleck said. This is fascinating to me because he's a Christian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's so much in there. There's yeah. so much in there. He, I mean, praise God that he's he's coming to Christianity, that he's coming to know Jesus. So I don't want to, you know, poo-poo that and be the critical one. But at the same time, there are some things here that aren't right about Christianity. And it would be exactly yeah. now that if I said that online, someone would come along and say, hey, you're judging what he said about not judging, right? It's a circular right. argument that we always get into. So I just thought, hey, this is a, a good example of how so many people understand. He's just assuming this is what Christianity is about, you know, that we don't judge. Yeah. So I start, when you read that quote, I felt like if somebody took Richard Rohr and Joel Osteen <laughs> and mushed them into the same person, that is what they would say. They had a quote baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A quote baby. <laughs> no, I know. Exactly. You know, you're going to have your best life now. Um, it, it's true. But so, but the bottom line on what the Bible actually says about this, the words that everyone quotes, do not judge or you two will be judged. Matthew 7, 1, Jesus is saying this. Everyone stops reading right there. But if you continue reading what he says, that's just a prelude to this whole text where he's talking about, hey, don't take the speck out of someone else's eye before you remove the plank from your own. In other words, don't be a a hypocrite when you're going and you're looking at sin, you're calling out sin on someone else, make sure you're not guilty of the same thing. So this famous line is really part of this whole text where he's talking about don't be hypocritical in your judgment. In other places, John 7, 24, he says specifically, judge with right judgment. And so we're not supposed to not judge. We are supposed to judge sin rightly and not hypocritically. And importantly, we're not called to condemn another. And sometimes this is what people have in mind when they haven't stopped to define words clearly when they're saying, hey, we shouldn't be judging. What they really mean is we shouldn't be condemning. We do not have the place of God to ultimately pass that final judgment on someone's life and saying, hey, you're are not going to be with God or you're not on God's side. This is not our role, but we are called to discernment, which I think is a much better word than just judgment because it comes packed with such loaded meaning today. We are called to discernment both in matters of sin and in matters of doctrine. And in both of those cases, the Bible is very clear that we are not to just sit back and say, well, I'm not going to judge that. We're supposed to judge with right judgment. Yeah. That's good stuff. And this is also tied in with sort of a denial of the atonement that we see in progressive Christianity. You can't get around the statement, Jesus died for my sins. That's in the earliest creed. It's it's all throughout scripture. It's all throughout the history of the church. But it really, when somebody asked me once about the essentials of the faith, I used that as one of the essentials that Paul identified in that early creed, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And I pointed out that because Paul said that's one of the most important things, that's of utmost importance, it really matters what we think that means. Because really the the reality of our Christianity is going to stand or fall based on us understanding what that means. And so a lot of times progressives will say, well, Jesus didn't teach that. He didn't see himself that way. But help us with this. In your book, as you go through who Jesus really was, our kids need to understand that something as simple as the statement, like Jesus died for my sins, 
they need to understand more than that. They need to understand what that means and how that applies. So what did, why did Jesus think he was dying and what did his death accomplish? Yeah, this is a lot like what we were talking about earlier, right? Where I said that, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, okay, we can memorize a verse, but what what are the theological under, underpinnings of that? And I think as a kid, for me, I, you know, heard Jesus died for my sins so often that it lost its meaning, actually. It became sort of like yeah. a Christian slogan. Of course, I know Jesus died for my sins. Now I'm going to heaven. But what, what does that mean? You know, there's so much more to understand here. And you, you know, you've talked about atonement, like you said, a lot of times and done some really great episodes around this. Uh, so I'm not going to go into all of the backdrop here, but I want to share in terms of helping kids understand some of the key points, the way that I address this in one of the chapters is by giving them what I call the three P's of Jesus's death. And I have to say, I'm super proud of myself for coming up with a, a new type of, you know, three P's type of thing, planned, I like purposeful, it. and personal. So help me mm. our kids remember Jesus's death was planned, purposeful, and personal. So just to briefly describe what those mean, in terms of it being planned, Jesus predicted his violent death and resurrection multiple times, saying that he, quote unquote, must suffer and die. So this is a really important part of the puzzle because it shows that he didn't just happen to end up in the wrong hands. So there was no stroke yeah. of bad luck or shocking surprise. He wasn't just that hapless victim of a mob that came and got him and then he died. And now we have this beautiful example of someone's love. And, you know, as sometimes it's portrayed to be, this was part of a plan. And in Matthew 26, 18, for example, we see Jesus on the road to Jerusalem and he is saying to his disciples that his appointed time is near. Appointed time. That has, uh, mm. you know, a lot of meaning to it. He clearly viewed the cross as part of this necessary plan. So that's the first P. He knew that this was coming. It's part of a plan. The second one is that it was purposeful. So he didn't just know that he would die. It's not just, okay, I have a plan and, you know, that's what's going to happen, but I don't know why. He knew exactly why he would die. And of course, in Mark 10, 45, a very important verse, he says, the son of man, which is how he referred to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So mm. he's very specifically identifying as this purpose. And a ransom is just a payment to release someone from something. So in this case, given the context that we have, Jesus was coming to release us from sin. And he identifies yeah. himself with the suffering servant that was prophesied back in Isaiah 53, who would be pierced for our transgressions. So this shows that the idea of Jesus being sacrificed for sin on our behalf, it wasn't some tangential add-on to Christian belief over the centuries. It was his self identified purpose for coming. So mm. this was very purposeful for him. So we have planned, purposeful. And the last one, the final P is important too. It was personal. Jesus says he personally chose to lay down his life. So this was not a case of God sacrificing some kind of helpless third party for sin, as it's sometimes portrayed. Jesus as God himself laid down his own life for us. It was a personal decision. So I think these P's together, the planned, purposeful, and the personal all work together to help our kids have this little framework for thinking about what Jesus's death meant and yeah. that it wasn't just something that happened and now we're trying to make sense of it. There was a plan all along. There was a purpose all along, and it was Jesus's personal purpose. Well, I'm really proud of you for coming up with that as well. That is awesome. I'm going to use that with my kids. Although I will say, if you could have condensed it to two P's, then you could tell your kids to remember pee pee. Oh, that would and have been they would brilliant. probably love that. <laughs> Next time I'm going to consult with you before I come up with any Yeah, parts. I mean, because if I told my kids it's pee pee, they would never forget it. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Well, we are almost out of time, but I do want to come back to the resurrection. We already talked about it being a core tenet of Christianity. In fact, Paul saying, basically it's Christian, it's the test. It's Christianity stands or falls, whether or not Jesus was actually raised from the dead. And so many today in the progressive church think we should focus less on the idea of physical resurrection and more what we can learn from the idea about it. Uh, so what do our kids need to know about the resurrection other than how important it is? But, you know, what about the evidence? You mentioned, can you very quickly as we close out, walk us through just a bit of the evidence? Because we're just honestly at a time where it's not enough for most people to just say, well, because the Bible says so. And so, so what can we know about the resurrection? What kind of evidence do we have for it? Right. So we talked about already about how Paul has given us this truth test for Christianity and the resurrection. So like we were talking about, first and foremost, our kids need to understand that that's the case, that without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. And hopefully that piques their interest to know more about, okay, well, how do we know that that actually happened? But you're right. In a lot of churches today, it's become this symbolic thing. They could hypothetically agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The resurrection is important, but have something totally different in mind. And I personally experienced this when I was um, fresh out of college and my husband and I, we found this church. We were kind of nominal Christians, like I said before, and we didn't know what to look for in a church. So we went to this local Presbyterian church, sounded like a Christian church in our minds. And while we were there, we had been there for three years, actually, before we realized that they were teaching some very different things (laughs) than we had Mm. maybe grown up learning. And one Easter Sunday, the pastor said, it doesn't really matter if Jesus was raised from the dead. What matters is that he lives on in our hearts and we can now make the world a better place. Mm. So that was the first time where I went, wait, wait, what? <laughs> wait, it, it doesn't matter if he was raised from the dead. You know, there was a lot I didn't understand about my faith at the time, but I did understand that this was an important part of it. And so there are a lot of churches today that are making those kinds of claims. So even before we look at evidence, we need to help our kids understand what kind of resurrection matters. And mm. the gospels very clearly claim that the resurrection was bodily in nature. So Jesus reportedly ate food. He was touched. He showed people his bodily wounds. He had conversations. He visited a house. And all the gospels also report the empty tomb as a key part of the resurrection testimony. So if it were just meant to be symbolic, we would have no need to emphasize that his body was gone. And to me, this is a a really compelling point. And when I read that, I thought, oh yeah, of course, why talk about the empty tomb if it's just all about what it means to us and our hearts? So that's, that's a really important starting point that sometimes we don't even think about as Christian parents, what kind of resurrection matters that it is bodily. And so beyond that, we have to teach them, of course, the historical evidence for the resurrection so that they know it's not a matter of blind faith. And I spent five chapters in the book actually walking through that evidence and looking at alternative explanations. But the, the big picture of that is looking at Uh, some basic historical facts that everyone would agree on. And perhaps most importantly, that the disciples really were transformed from these people who were kind of cowardly beforehand and seemingly not knowing what to make of everything and to being bold proclaimers who were willing to risk their lives to suffer and die for what they were Mm. proclaiming to be true after the alleged resurrection. And it's important to, uh, to point out, and Sean McDowell has written quite a bit about this, that it doesn't necessarily matter that every single one of them was martyred for their faith, but that they were willing 
to suffer and die should that happen. And so I talk Mm. a little bit about that in one of the chapters. But the key point of this is, okay, so if we see this giant transformation and that there's no evidence that any of them ever recanted their faith and they're all going out, they're willing to suffer and die to proclaim this. And it would be extremely difficult, as Jay Warner Wallace in his books has pointed out, to have some kind of conspiracy given the factors that are going on. Given these facts, what's the best explanation? And there are some other historical facts we can look at as well, but I'm just kind of highlighting the biggest one there. And people have offered all kinds of things. You know, the disciples lied or they were mistaken or they were hallucinating or this was just a legend that grew up over time. In the book, I just systematically walk through those and talk about why those actually don't make sense of the facts as we know them. And that unless you have ruled out, philosophically speaking, from the beginning, a miracle, because you don't believe that God exists and miracles are possible, the resurrection is the best explanation for the historical evidence we have. The book is called Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. Go to Amazon, get this book. I I really, truly hope that every Christian parent listening will get this book. If you have grown kids who are parents, grandmas and grandpas, get this book for your, your kids to share with their kids. It's such a valuable resource, especially in such confusing times where everything just seems all muddled together. I I know you can hear the clarity in what Natasha is saying, and it's exciting to me to to hear all of this laid out so clearly for Christian parents. Uh, Natasha, I wish I had your brain, and I'm so glad (laughs) that you came on the show today. Thanks for being on. Hey, thank you so much, and thanks for all the work you're doing, Lisa. You are just doing amazing work in this whole area of progressive Christianity and I am personally grateful for all you're doing. And I'm telling people all the time about your podcast and your blog. And I just really appreciate all you're doing. Well, it's a team effort. So I'm, I'm thankful for all your work as well. Thank you. enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or you can subscribe on iTunes and YouTube. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.